Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me both great pleasure and a lot of pain to invite our guest to the show today. How would you feel if over 70 million titles to property in the United States of America were clouded titles? Or a company like MERS, the VP of a company, may actually own your own home or commercial property? Between 2001 and 2008, the largest banks in the country and the most cherished investment banks failed to perfect the security interest of thousands of bondholders who purchased private label mortgage-backed securities in millions of mortgages in every state of the country. The author of Who Really Owns Your Home? Clouded Titles, David Krieger, is with us today to separate fact from fiction and put the details of this virulent monster that's afoot in the U.S. real estate market in its place in front of the entire United States consumer and commercial real estate banking and title marketplace. Hold on to your hats, buckle up, and don't look back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome David Krieger to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. You better just start because most of America will not believe what you're about to say. <laughs> no, they won't. As a matter of fact, we're just getting word. I just got off the phone with an attorney who is a law professor that I was supplying information to for the amicus brief he wrote in Washington State in the Bain versus Murs case. The Supreme Court of the state of Washington has just ruled, I just got the, the ruling, that MERS, Mortgage Electronic Registration System, is not a valid beneficiary in the state of Washington. In other words, anybody that went out and signed a MERS mortgage in the state of Washington has a beneficiary on there that, according to the Washington Supreme Court, must hold the promissory note. MERS doesn't hold the promissory note, and they answered that question with a no. As far as the, uh, the third question, they answered yes. They can bring a, a Credit uh, Practices Act action, but the mere fact that MERS is listed on the deed as a beneficiary is not in itself an actionable injury. Uh, this basically um, eludes itself to the fact that now the attorneys are going to get involved and have to examine all the contractual elements of these contracts. Now, that having been said, this is state number one that has now ruled that MERS is not a valid beneficiary. Hold on. we got to establish the frame of reference for the people listening. Throw the gauntlet down and tell the audience what you've discovered. Okay, back in 2006, Kim, I got out of my last mortgage. It was Halloween. Easy date to remember. And years later, in 2011, on Halloween Day... I'm sitting in the office of the Fort Bend County clerk in a conference room talking to her, talking to the Fort Bend County district attorney and the Fort Bend County attorney about this very subject, MERS and your chain of title and all the problems it has created. I threw the gauntlet down when I got out of my last mortgage involving MERS in 2006, and I've been looking over my shoulder ever since wondering whether or not we're going to have issues as a result of somebody buying my house and going in and digging up the chain of title and coming after me because I may not have sold that person a valid uh, home with a valid and clear chain of title. This is the bigger problem now 
that a lot of counties who are suing this entity claiming that they were denied of recordation fees in the county land records. Uh, this is a problem because they're all coming begging for money, and the real problem of all these 70 million somewhat chains of title to these homes in America could be tainted, and in, the, in effect, you'd literally have to consider retaining an attorney and going to court to quiet the title before you can actually sell this property. To all the real estate holders in America, what should they do to see if there's something on the back end that has separated the note from the chain of title? I want you to go into this because this is a mechanism. And I intend to. Okay. Uh, There's so much information on the front end. First off, you have to understand that the intent of having MERS or Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, Inc., it's uh, it's an acronym. MERS is a computer database. It is maintained by a company now known as MERS Corp Holdings, Inc., Both are Delaware corporations. MERS Corp Holdings, Inc. is a stock corporation held by the interest of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Mortgage Bankers Association, the American Land Title Association, and all the major banks. They all went in on this because they needed an electronic database that would move at lightning speed where member subscribers to MERS could go in and register sales and transactions of these mortgage loans that all these borrowers went out and took between uh, starting at the earliest that we can see uh, known issues is between 1999 going forward to today. So basically you're looking at about 13 years worth of mess that's going to take a whole century to undo. It's a huge problem because of the fact that uh, you know, people didn't know when they went to the closing table that MERS claims to be a beneficiary, yet MERS doesn't have anything to do with the promissory note. All MERS does is track the sales of these notes as they progress through the securities market on Wall Street. Now, the issue with MERS is that it is nothing but an electronic database. It tracks mortgages in its own private little world. The people at MERS regard MERS as a legend in their own mind. When you compare MERS to what's in the electronic uh, you know, database versus what's in the county land records, they are two totally different and distinct reports. If you were to go in and do a chain of title in the land records of the county that your property is located in, you would discover that as we have in every single case that my company has reviewed, that the chain of title does not match the chain of custody of the note. And the note is what is used to secure the mortgages and deeds of trust that are on file with the land records. That's the easiest way to phrase it. When a lender comes and forecloses on a borrower because the borrower didn't make their mortgage payments and thus went into default, generally what we're seeing is that the lenders that are there that are trying to foreclose are either doing it using the name MERS and claiming that MERS is a nominee for the lender, which gives the MERS the right to go in and foreclose and sell their property, including, uh, you know, I mean, literally, they would appoint a, a trustee in a deed of trust state like California and Arizona uh, to go in and nominate a law firm as a substitute trustee to foreclose on the property when MERS, according to what we just heard in Washington, is not the legal beneficiary. The legal beneficiary, in in many definitions, as we are seeing, 
And like I said, I'm a paralegal. I'm not an attorney. So if you have a problem absorbing this, you need to get an attorney and get legal advice and have a qualified, competent attorney review this information. Uh, I have attorneys, Kim, reading my book and ordering it by the case and distributing it to clients en masse. Um, I have the former Ohio Attorney General, Mark Dan, in my network. We talk a lot. I have a network of 40 attorneys, and it's growing across the country. And these attorneys are all frontline foreclosure defense litigators that understand the problems and inherent situations and scenarios created by MERS's participation in mortgages and deeds of trust. The biggest problem is, is that the MERS system intentionally obfuscates or hides the chain of custody of the note. So the borrower, as was stated in the Bain case in Washington, when MERS's counsel went in there to plead their case before the Washington State Supreme Court, they clearly said it's a fallacy for a borrower to need to know who owns their loan. This is shocking. Apparently, the Washington State Supreme Court thought the same thing, judging by this morning's ruling. They're saying that MERS has to hold the promissory note. Well, MERS doesn't. And in order for MERS to have any validity as a lender, it has to hold the note. So the distinguishing factors are now starting to come to light. And we basically, if, if you're talking to the average law professor who I just got off the phone with, his basic... Uh, you know, claim, you know, conference call to me. It was, it was very, very quick uh, because I was coming online here and I had to find out from him because I frankly didn't have time to review this. And since I was involved in the preparation, you know, in supplying information for the amicus from uh, our Washington, which is a nonprofit group that was challenging MERS's right to be a beneficiary in the state of Washington, you know, I had to find out from, from this law professor I've been dealing with that the beneficiary, you know, what, what was the outcome of the case specifically, and we know now that the beneficiary has to hold the promissory note. MERS then cannot be a lawful beneficiary. However, the Washington Supremes let MERS off the hook as far as most actionable injuries because even if MERS is listed on the deed of trust as a beneficiary, is in of itself not an actionable injury. In other words, you can't sue MERS just because it said, oh, we're the beneficiary. You know, you've you got to be able to prove that you were harmed in some way, according to the way I'm hearing it. Now, again, you need to call an attorney and find this out. A couple of things, and then I want to open up the Starship Bridge. We have a uh, fantastic guest, a special guest here, who's qualified to ask you some questions that are over my head, okay? Sure. In the book, it is said that the regulators, like the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. Justice Department, and the State Attorney General weren't even focused on the millions of homeowners, on the risk that the homeowners took and the fraudulent loans that they made. It all kind of works in tandem with each other. Uh, the counties are screaming because MERS, in acting as a static beneficiary, uh, basically it records once and then just stays there, and it claims to be the beneficiary while all the transactions and the sales of the note and the interests of the future uh, past that recordation are not being recorded in the land records. In other words, you've got all these interests that are supposed to be perfected in the land records, Kim, and they're not being perfected. And each time they're not being perfected, the county is claiming that it's being denied recording fees and thus is having to cut back on services. So 
you know, they're all screaming for money when the real issues lie in the fact that what we're seeing is that the chains of titles to all the properties that have a MERS mortgage or deed of trust face potential issues with clouds on title. Isn't this all about securitizing the mortgages and really turning everything into a derivative, if you will? That's exactly what the MERS system was created to do, to speed up at lightning speed the recordation in their own little electronic mind of all of the transactions going on in the uh, securities market on Wall Street. And what a lot of attorneys are now telling me is that this, basically, you had a, an instrument that was securing a piece of property, and all of a sudden this note is being taken and wrapped into what we call a collateralized debt obligation on Wall Street. And these CDOs are being taken and wrapped into a derivative called a credit default swap. And the mortgage industry, this includes the banks, the mortgage brokerages on Wall Street, made $50 trillion selling these derivatives to investors and insurance companies. And they collected when the borrowers went in default because they literally, from all intents and purposes, bet against the performance of the loan after they designed the loan to fail. In other words, when the borrower went to the closing table, they were saddled with a mortgage the lender knew they would not be able to repay once these adjustable rate mortgages reset themselves. And this is exactly what happened. And I wrote the book because in 06 through 08, I started noticing the trend and the pattern, and I started looking into the land records and noticing that what was happening on Wall Street wasn't being recorded in the land records on Main Street. And this is how I came to start writing this book. This is so explosive, my God. This is like what I call a virulent monster. All right, open up the Starship Bridge, Andy, and let our special guest in for the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to welcome Ellen Brown, J.D., the author of the popular book, Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. I thought she would be very important to talk with Dave and I about clouded titles and the securitization of the mortgages. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Ellen Brown to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Uh, thanks, Kim. What do you think of this, Ellen? Well, it's amazing that uh, Washington has ruled I, my understanding was that Utah, the Utah Supreme Court had come out with a similar ruling. But anyway, that's great. That's, uh, that's precedent. I do have a question on the, the 50 trillion that, um, the banks have made in credit default swaps. Who is it? Who paid the 50 trillion? Who's on the other side? I am a little confused on that. The credit default swap is a bet. I guess they must have had investors that came in on the other side, correct? Yes, this is what Ellen and, and I want to say that I've, you're you're well read on this end. Um, and, oh, and, great! Yeah, and your articles are I'll phenomenal. Read <laughs> your articles are phenomenal, uh, and I'm glad that we have you on this morning because you know it, it's nice to have a JD on the program too. The thing is, is these these allegations of all this money that was made. I think you and I would both concur that you know those figures are still being unraveled. We're we're still trying to get to the bottom of this thing. The problem. Uh, that I'm seeing, Kim, is that the issues with the Department of Justice being so closely connected to MERS's law firm of Covington and Burling uh, have basically prevented it from, uh, due to conflict issues, uh, it appears, coming forward and litigating uh, the parties that you know could allegedly be held and taken to task for this mess. 
uh, because of the fact that they used to represent them. Uh, it looks like we've got a revolving door between the DOJ, the SEC, and all the brokerage houses and banks on Wall Street. That was my concern, what Richard Fine would call a concert of action. There's a concerted action, like a symphony going on. That's scarier to me. Well, it is. Uh, we're working right now on, you know, San Bernardino is nearly bankrupt, and they're talking about taking properties by eminent domain that are underwater. So, so we're working on a proposal on that right now. So what do you propose? I mean, we that many of these investors have been have lost a lot of money as well. So you don't want to like totally squeeze them out of the picture. So my understanding is the investors have um, an unsecured claim for actual losses. So if they've actually been if they've been covered by credit default swaps, for example, they couldn't collect a second time. But have you thought through, I, I'm not sure what you're proposing in the way of remedies, but I wondered what, if you've thought through what, what the investors could take or get. We are seeing that the investors, obviously, as you probably well know, are coming back on the brokerage houses and the banks, uh, claiming that right. the, uh, they knew or should have known that these prospectuses didn't contain factual information. They're basically suing on the 424B5s and all the peripheral information that was given to them uh, for which they relied upon when they invested in these things in the first place. Uh, we mm -hmm. also know and that, you know, Jed Rakoff, that U.S. District Court judge in New York, who's my hero, is uh, stepping in and telling the SEC, I'm not going to rubber stamp your, your agreements. <laughs> well, besides the fraud of or the problem that MERS uh, does not hold title, I, I think these properties have REMIC problems, the real estate mortgage and investment conduits that the properties are put into. I mean, that was what the whole robo-signing thing was about, that they couldn't assign the properties to the REMIC until after default because they didn't know which set of investors to assign them to because the triple Bs, you know, would take would take the ones that went into default. And that was a violation of the REMIC rules. I mean, there are all sorts of problems with the, with this whole, that MERS was just a smokescreen to cover up all this stuff that was going on in the back, which is fraudulent, which, which they should, that we need to rip that screen away and see what was going on underneath. And I've also heard that um, the banks would sell the same property to 10 different sets of investors rather like fractional reserve lending. I think that's what they're thinking. You know, we're just, this is our collateral and we're back. If we need to foreclose, we've got these mortgages here that we can foreclose on. So we'll just sell it to all these investors and get the money. And then the banks were taking that money, like one set of investors, the money they got from one, they could pay all the other investors monthly, whatever the deal was for their monthly payout. And then they could take all the rest of the money and invest it. They got that money very cheaply, and they could invest it in all their speculative schemes, and we're making money on top of money. But just huge frauds going on. Speaking of fraud, Ellen, Centra JD, isn't it true that no matter what you write in a contract, if the contract that's written is a fraud, it doesn't apply? In other words, these derivative contracts that are set in the back end that are not in harmony with the land records, they're fraudulent. Why should investors in something that's fraudulent be honored? True, but the investors themselves are pension funds and, you know, groups abroad that have been, whole cities have been taken down by these arrangements and little old ladies, you know, that invest in a mutual fund or something. So, so the investors too are 
it's the banks that were the defrauding parties. So it seems to me it's a, I mean, it's definitely there's something wrong here and we definitely need to work it out. But it, it's tricky making everybody whole or ma- making. You need a whole systems remedy is the bottom line. Yeah, that's what we're trying to work on right now with the, the whole uh, eminent domain idea. A county could, of course, a county has the power of em- an eminent domain. In the, if they see properties in the public interest that should belong to the public, then they they can put a notice in the paper and saying we're we're taking these properties by eminent domain, and anybody who can tr- prove title, we will pay fair market value to. But because of this whole MERS situation, particularly with that Washington decision, which is great. Um, they won't be able to prove title. The bank, it puts the burden on the banks. Right now, you know, the homeowner could go in and try to do that. But the homeowner in California, we're a non-judicial foreclosure state. So the homeowner has to actually get the bank into court, which means they have to hire an attorney and sue. And, and they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have the money for attorneys. And it's hard to find an attorney who understands all these issues. So they just don't do it. So the banks win by default. But if you put the burden on the bank of proving title, they're not going to be able to do it. So that means the banks, the, the properties go to the county by default. We're arguing that they should put the properties in a land bank, which would double as um, an inve- a bank, a public bank on the model of the Bank of North Dakota. So this bank could actually issue credit. In other words, doubling its money, turning its money into credit and use that credit to fix up the properties and then resell them or renegotiate the deal with the homeowner, depending on what kind of property it was and what stage it was in. Um, Oregon is going through the same thing right now. Its Supremes are also looking at what the outcome of the Washington case will be. But in Oregon, the same issues were posed through the NIDA versus GMAC and MERS case. And um, no, no sooner than the uh, Court of Appeals in Oregon ruled against MERS and said, you're not a valid beneficiary, a U.S. chief judge immediately certified to the Oregon Supreme Court questions, just like what they did in Washington State. And now Washington State has ruled against MERS as being a valid beneficiary. This is going to start a ripple effect against MERS all across the country. This is not over. This could end up in the United States Supreme Court before it's all over. This is a huge decision for us today and for all the, all the people out there. I'm going to be in Chicago, by the way, tomorrow uh, to start on a weekend uh, chain of title assessment training uh, we actually do workshops around the country for uh, homeowners and realtors and brokers and mortgage loan officers that are tired of, you know, getting beat up or looking at the liability and thinking they're going to get taken down. Uh, a lot of these people want to learn chain of title assessments. We are at, I'm being literally contacted by counties to come in and take my team in and start auditing their land records. They want to know how bad is it. You know, we, we know that we've been screwed over uh, in fees by MERS and the banks who failed to record. But the, the bigger problem we're having is, uh, you know, realizing just how big or how widespread the damage is. And that's because the MERS activity is invisible to the people that own the title, correct? That's right. The people who have recorded interest in the land records only have a what, what I call a facial uh, recognition of you know, what's really going on on the surface. Now, it's underneath. It's all the things going on underneath on Wall Street that is is taking them by surprise because, like Ellen was saying, 
if you look in your deed of trust or mortgage and it's a long-form mortgage and you see anywhere in that mortgage, especially in paragraph 19 or 20, where it's a sale of note, change of servicer, it specifically says the lender may sell your note or a partial interest thereof. That means they can do exactly what Ellen just said and run this thing to 35 or 50 or 100 different investors and pledge it to as many trusts and mortgage pools as they want. They can sell off little bits and pieces. And the problem is when you're looking at this stuff, you sell a piece of property to someone else and one of these banks or servicing entities comes in from down the road and is looking in the MERS system and saying, hey, uh, we have a piece of this note in our portfolio that's never been paid, and all of a sudden, the new owner of the property ends up getting foreclosed on and doesn't know why. And so, you know, the MERS thing, inherently to us, appears to create double liability, and I think the courts are starting to look at this. They certainly are in Florida, because there was a case there in Hillsborough County in Tampa, where two different lenders filed two separate lawsuits against the same piece of property. This is all because of the MERS system that this is happening. This is so scary because it means really that you can pay your mortgage off and think you own your home. Am I correct? And then not own your home. We have a couple in Plant City, Florida that got their mortgage loan paid off. It was paid off six years ago. Now Bank of America has sent them foreclosure notices and they're being taken to court. We had a homeowner in Chase, you know, in Kansas City, there was a homeowner, an investor who uh, bought one of these short sales. Oh God, you got to love that. He buys a short sale. He gets it from Chase. He has the property for two months. He moves in, owner-occupied investment. The property's paid off. He's paid the note in full. There's no investment, okay? He's paid cash for the property. And so there's no note. And he's moved in. His heirlooms are there. All his family possessions, his furnishings, everything's there. Two months later, he comes home from work. And what does he find? The house is locked up. He looks inside. It's empty. He breaks in the basement window. He comes in. He sees nothing. His toilets have been winterized. All his heirlooms and all his family possessions are gone. He contacts the police department. They come over and they say, well, apparently, you know, Safeguard, who is Chase's little go-to henchmen, their their house cleaner outers, come in there and completely take over, change the locks, and lock him out of his house that he paid cash for. We have another homeowner and, and he's filed suit against Chase, by the way. We have another homeowner in Missouri that bought a piece of property and paid cash. The title company failed to do a run-up. All of a sudden, we're finding out that nine months later, the lender actually recorded its interest in the property that it conveyed to the homeowner by special warranty deed nine months earlier. So the lender didn't own the property. They sold to the homeowner. Nine months later, they record their quit, their quit claim deed, and they use MERS as party of the first part, where it says MERS actually owns this property, and they're conveying it to themselves through a robo-signer at PHH Mortgage. This is unbelievable. I mean, all sorts of issues coming down that, uh, you know, I mean, it creates so much probative value for attorneys to consider, and this is what's making these chain of title assessments invaluable. And that's why everybody wants to learn how to do them, especially investors. They want to know. I don't want to buy a mistake. And so we have a lot of investors taking these classes. Well, it means a whole different equation for real estate then. This is a game changer for real estate and even the concept of ownership now. You know what it is? It's a matrix within a matrix within a matrix of disaster, isn't it? 
So what do you propose to homeowners? that Should they go in and, and um, try for a quiet title, or what remedies can they pursue? Well, again, you know, you're a JD, I'm a uh, paralegal. And, you know, having done the research as a journalist and you know, we're we're always on these talk shows, and we write you know blog articles and whatnot. And of course, that's uh, I've been called out on that in court. Um, the circumstances are such that I always have to. I tell my coder preparers, Ellen, five things: defer to counsel, defer to counsel, defer to counsel, defer to counsel, defer to counsel. <laughs> that way, I don't have some unauthorized practice of law committee breathing down my neck, going, "You gave legal advice." Ellen, I got to tell you something. This is very funny that Dave spends an inordinate amount of time in the beginning of the book that says the disclaimer. Please read. It's hysterical where he literally has to lay out everything. I'm not an attorney. I'm not an attorney. This is not legal advice. I'm not an attorney. So it's kind of like having a gag order on you. But I don't understand in the context of discussing a remedy... Why you can't discuss the conceptual basis of a remedy? We know you're not an attorney. What you've seen has worked. Sure. Well, here, here again, uh, we have seen quiet title actions succeed. We have seen quiet title actions backfire. Uh, one quiet title action in particular that has backfired, which you know should be of interest to everyone, is the issue with Harvey versus Garbett Mortgage in Utah, where the attorney that actually succeeded in getting a quiet title. Um, you know, judgment uh, for the property owner, Mr. Uh, Harvey, uh, he is now being sued for negligence because Mr. Harvey sold the property to another couple who all of a sudden is now being foreclosed on by the bank, uh, who was never supposedly notified. Uh, This is one of the reasons why I tell the attorneys in these seminars I'm holding, you know, you may tell me I'm an idiot, folks, but, you know, you need to publish you need to do what the banks do. Why? And you ask yourself this other question. Why are the banks suing MERS in all of their foreclosures? Well, maybe they know something we don't know that we need to pick up on. Uh, you know, key here is that if MERS is obfuscating for all these other uh, lenders and lenders and successors and assigns and the successors and assigns of MERS, you know, which is what they state in your mortgage and deed of trust, you can get out and look at it. It's under transfer and rights in the property on page three of most of your documents. You know, if you go look at that and you see all of it, you wonder why the banks are bringing MERS into court as a defendant because they want to sue everybody that MERS claims to be a nominee for so they can catch everything and they don't want somebody coming back on the property, uh, especially when they're turning around and signing indemnification agreements with investors when they buy these REOs. You know, God forbid I got title officers in, in parts of the country telling me if you buy a real estate owned property or an REO from a bank, you're crazy because you don't know what kind of problems you're going to have with title. And you also, you know, I mean, the shadow inventory is, is we think is bigger than, than what they're telling us because they don't want a, a riot on their hands. They don't want to scare the country into thinking that, you know, half the homes in America are vacant. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's a real problem when you're doing damage control, you know, for all the parties to be telling the same story. And <laughs> I've got a case right now in Kansas City where the note was brought into court and it doesn't match the affidavit that the original lender's attorney filed. It also doesn't match the discovery that was proffered by MERS and the bank that's involved. Every single bit of it, it all says a different thing. So <laughs> this is why I'm saying that the chain of title doesn't match the chain of custody of the note. And if you know that you have a warranty deed in your possession, one of the benefits of being able to quiet title is having standing to do that. And so, um, you know, obviously quiet title is huge. A lot of the attorneys that I'm working with in, in our network, Ellen, are using a declaratory judgment count, 
basically giving the court the right to determine the interests of the parties and whether or not they even have one, and dismissing them from the case through a series of partial summary judgments, uh, hence to lead up to the actual decision and decree to quiet title. Uh, I've done this before, but it was basically for tax deeds, which, of course, as you know, the Bellastry case was a tax deed that went crazy, and uh, MERS now demands to be noticed every time that it's a party or is mentioned in any of the contracts, so it can throw its attorney's weight around in court to see if it can get any standing anywhere. Um, you know, we all we know that there are certain negligence claims and breach of fiduciary duty claims being taken now against the trustees as far as common law claims, uh, and, and we're seeing more of that asserted than we are just direct fraud claims because the burden of proof is so high in fraud claims. If you look at the jury instructions, your best attorneys know that if you follow the jury instructions when you're writing pleadings, and I have trial lawyers telling me that, the ones that do complex litigation are telling me that if you... Uh, take these jury instructions and you follow these things to the T, your, your chances of winning your case just, you know, exponentially increase. Stand by, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dave Krieger and Ellen Brown. 98% of illness has to do with the body's expression of an obstruction of the normal flow, balance, and distribution of energy that's happening at an emotional level. The body exists in a waveform of information, and when it's blocked, it simply needs to be canceled. Today's allopathic medical paradigm does not give you the speed, and it doesn't give you the highest bandwidth of information, discoveries, and knowledge, because it is shutting down the ability for solutions to come other than through its own mechanism, which is tightly controlled and regulated. It's the same mechanism that is turned on the American people and said, if you sell raw milk, if you grow your own gardens, if you catch your own rainwater on your own land, we're going to put you in jail. It's an environment now where if you talk about people that are healing and being cured, in fact, you can't even use the word cure in a public forum. You can risk going to jail and the leader of a public forum who's talking about cures and remedies can also go to jail. That's the kind of environment we're living in now. So we're not living in a free speech environment anymore. It's over. Dan Nelson is a physicist and a researcher who is the founder of the Positron Group, a health association that allows people to network, share knowledge, experience, expertise, and a private teaching school to help the members get to the root cause of their greatest health problems as quickly as possible. And when I say quickly, I mean at the level of fiber optics. Health solutions at the upper bandwidth and speed are what the Positron Group is about communicating and expressing. That communication and expression needs to be done in a safe environment where everybody agrees that they have the right to free speech, they have a right to discuss whatever remedies are working or not working for them, and they don't have to worry about being put in jail for doing so. So if you would be interested in learning new technologies and very quick ways to heal your greatest health problems, call Nancy at the Positron Group at 870-741-5877 or go to their website, positroninfo.com, P-O-S-I-T-R-O-N, like Nancy, info.com. Thank you. And back to the show. Okay. Do you want to finish what you're saying, Dave? And then I want to ask you a question. The, uh, the, the problems that we're seeing 
uh, again, is like the, the persons who think that they're buying property to clear title, and they go to the closing table, and, and we have actually seen the addenda that they issue in some of these short sales and REO sales. Uh, they've been forwarded to us by, you know, like Bloomberg called me one afternoon and sent me a copy of a, uh, a Wells Fargo uh, agreement that they use uh, as an addendum to their REO and short sale purchases. And they said, well, we're having a problem locating the indemnification clause. You know, because we heard that you had said something about indemnification, and, you know, they're trying to hold my feet to the fire, and they said, we can't find it. Could you, could you find it? And so after I received it, I downloaded it, and I looked at it, and I said, uh, page 4, paragraph 22, uh, ask yourself the first question. Uh, why did they bury it way down at the bottom of the contract? <laughs> well, that's what fine print is. I mean, the devil's in the details. That's what fine print's all yes, about. I agree with you there, and I think Neil Garfield said that too. You know, devil's in the details. Max Gardner has said it. I know Alan Brown has probably said it. <laughs> Abigail Field has said it. A lot of people have said it. Sure, sure. But why can't a remedy be a new structure of loans for homes that are off the grid of the MERS system? Almost like the way Grameen Bank started with microloans, why can't we start a totally different type of loan scenario specifically for property that is off the grid of the MERS cancerous, monstrous, virulent system? Well, one problem is the way our banking system is structured. You've got to come up with the money somehow. There's the capital requirement. If you follow the banking rules, you can lend out all your money once, and then that's it. You have to wait for 30 years until you get it back before you can lend it out again. But by selling off their mortgages to investors, then they could lend over and over and over and still meet their capital requirement. So you would have to change the structure of the whole banking system, but, but I think that should be done. I mean, that's what I'm writing about now on public banking. I know this may be a premature question just because this is really breaking with Dave Krieger's discoveries, but let's suppose that a state bank was enforced the way that you visioned it. How would a state bank monetize or issue credit for the purchase of a home or a commercial property that was off the grid of MERS and couldn't be securitized? Well, that's what you have in North Dakota. They they did not get into that whole uh, securitization mess because they didn't need to. Because if you have a, a publicly owned bank and you put your state revenues in it, your public revenues, that is a huge deposit base. And then the way the Bank of North Dakota is set up, uh, it's the North Dakota doing business as the Bank of North Dakota. So technically, all of the capital, all of the assets of the state are the assets of the bank. So they've met their capital requirement. You know, the capital requirement was not imposed by us. It was imposed by the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, which is an offshoot of that whole, it's the city of London has been in control of all their ex-colonies for centuries. I mean, we, we broke away. We got our political independence, but they kept control with, with this financial thing where everybody ultimately is borrowing from the big London banks and the big Wall Street banks, which are, you know, it's the same chain. So to escape that, uh, so so when the reserve requirements no longer worked, when the banks had figured out how to get around the reserve requirements, they imposed this capital requirement. And that's what keeps banks from just generating credit which is really what our banking system should be. Really what a bank does is monetize your own promise to repay. It turns credit into money. And if you had a public system 
where that's all you did was that you didn't need to worry about capital because you're backed by the full faith and credit of the whole country if it was a, if it was a national system. Anyway, it's to, what we need to do is a, set up a system that gets around these turn this tourniquet that has been imposed on the flow of credit by actually ultimately by the city of London and by the Bank for International Settlements. It's really big. It's profound. What do you see in the short term, Dave, when people are going to go in and fight this and go through the network of people that you've trained? There's going to be a lot of people that aren't in a position to fight. I mean, this is really sad. What are people going to do who aren't in a position to hire expensive counsel to fight on something they've already paid for, they already own, they've been good citizens, they've taken care of their home? Are they to stand there and lose it? What do they do? I, I feel like that wife that played with Will Smith in Enemy of the State where, you know, he huh. says, you're going to have to go, to go to your parents in Philadelphia. And she goes, I'm not leaving. I picked those drapes. Exactly. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> look, your, your emotions are tied to something that is material. Uh, you know, is it worth killing yourself over? I, I literally, I, I walked away from a mortgage in 2003. I admit it. I did it. I strategically defaulted. That's why I put Section 3 in this book. You know, people need to understand what your options are. And I can't tell you how many times people have called me and asked me, should I stop paying my mortgage? And I'm like, what? I said, I don't know of an attorney that would answer that question, you know, that you couldn't hold their feet to the fire at some point in time down the road. No, I'm not going to answer that question. You know, I can't tell you what to do. I can show you where, what other people are doing, what all the options are, which is what I reported on. But, you know, taking a gun and putting it to your head and pulling the trigger is not the answer. You know, and people have done it. They've, they've killed their whole family because they've gone down the toilet. They've committed suicide. They've suffered heart attacks. Uh, I mean, this is literally, they beat their kids uh, to the point where they're breaking their arms and legs. And, and, you know, the schools are turning them in and CPS is confiscating their family. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, this thing has exploded, put homeless kids on the street. They're living in hotels, uh, tent cities. I mean, this is huge what this has done. And, um, you know, we, we have to tell people, you know, rather than become a victim, you need to rise above it. And how you do that is up to you. Uh, you know, I basically found uh, another set of digs that I was using as a rental property, and they were vacating. And I said, fine, I'm going to move into my rental and uh, continue paying on that mortgage rather than deal in this predatory loan. And, uh, you know, I couldn't sell my house at the time, so I made the decision to give it back. Now, had I known then what I know now, I would have fought them. But the problem is, is if you don't have a war chest, and many people, when they, they purchase a home, they're not, they don't plan on this. They don't plan for having a, a war chest of $20,000 to hire an attorney to quiet title or, or, or deal with issues. That's one thing. But the other part of this is that the attorneys are afraid of the judges. A lot of them, yeah. There's certain judges, like in Arizona, that we have a judge in the federal system there that will sanction any attorney bringing a quiet title action in their court. And, and you know, knowing this, all the foreclosure bills in Arizona are, are trying to remove their cases to the, in front of this judge because they want them thrown out. They want 12B6 rulings, and they want motions to dismiss, and they want to see the other side get hammered. And this is why they're doing it. You're right about that. That's one of the reasons in the book I told people you need to background the judges. I actually have done research in background judges' financial statements, and I've got judges with MERS mortgages. When we do land record audits, I have the county clerks pull all the files of all the county judges and JPs in the system. I want to see if they're participants in the MERS system because I want it exposed. I want it out there. You know, I did an interview with Richard Fine, who's an international attorney who was with the Justice Department for years, and he was taking care of some cases in California, 
And he found out that the county of Los Angeles was bribing the judges in the court system and that it wasn't just one, it was many, that this was going on all over. So while he was in court, he asked the judge to recuse himself. The judge disbarred him, fined him in a case that he was not allowed to participate on as an attorney. And when Richard refused to pay $50,000 for a case that he wasn't even allowed to try in order to allow the judge to look at his financial records, they kept him in solitary confinement for 18 months. And I just interviewed him two weeks ago. There are a lot of attorneys who know what's going on. And there are a lot of attorneys who don't know what's going on with regard to county involvement. You have other members that are running the state that are paying off the judges. It's a very complex weave of what's happening. And people are scared to death to lose their bar license. Now, it happens to be that Richard Fine, though they disbarred him for something that has nothing to do with breaking the law or any unethical behavior, they just decided to take his bar license is more dangerous now to them than he is with a bar license because all bets are off now. Exactly. Yeah, you he know? doesn't have that same decorum they have to follow. I really think that the people that you're coaching, who are the attorneys, have to be very strong. And there's a bit of an X factor with what kind of judge they're going to get. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to go in pro per or pro se. And I want you to comment on that, Dave. Well, I put this in the book. I know you did. Yeah, really? and I know you read it. <laughs> so otherwise you wouldn't be asking me this question. <laughs> the, the, the biggest problem, and I'm not saying that, you know, if, if all hell breaks loose, that, you know, you can't go and defend yourself pro se. What I don't want to see is, is what happened in California and what just happened here at Texas A&M outside the university when, uh, you know, they went to serve an eviction notice and you've got three people dead and several people shot up. Uh, you know, because homeowners are going to start, and, and you'll see this. If if not, they, they're going to say, "Oh, Dave said it's okay to do that." No, it's not. Uh, that, that there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to handle this. And you know, obviously, SWAT team barricaded in the house, police standoffs are not it uh, because they ramp up for this kind of thing. So you know, what we're trying to do is to come to you know an amicable and peaceful solution here. But you know, the pro se litigant has to understand that you know, if from what we're seeing, he has a huge amount. Uh, and, and Ellen, of course, being with a, a Juris Doctorate, can certainly attest to the fact that she has way more oodles of education uh, and, and that experiential knowledge than most pro se litigants getting into this for the first time that, that went to somebody's blog and read it. And uh, it's, it's just like somebody coming in and saying, oh, well, I saw how to take an appendectomy out on the internet. And so, you know, my kid had an appendicitis attack. And so I cut him open and took out his appendix. Right. I'm sure you did. I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, you know, if you really think you have the cojones to go into court and do something like this, you know, God love you. But there's a problem that most pro se litigants don't understand, and that is that the bank's attorneys are very good at what they do, and we have this little thing called being out-procedured, and nine times out of ten, this is what happens to the homeowners. They come in, their pleadings are deficient, they have some, you know, patriot paralegal preparing their documents, uh, they're, they're getting bad advice from people in the recording documents and the land records. We have a woman in Stanislaus County, California, that just got sentenced to a year in jail on two felony counts for filing two false documents in the land records trying to save her parents' home from being foreclosed on. You know, we can't help but, you know, scratch our heads and go, what's wrong with the picture? Why are these people just going ahead and, and relying on these administrative proceedings and all this other pro se paralegal stuff 
that's coming out of the patriot movement that you know is just counterproductive and contradictory to the rules and regulations and procedures of the court systems the way that they're set up. Uh, you know, we, you have to tell the pro se litigant because one, they're they're fueled by anger and emotion, and if you're not fueled by reason, you know, even I think a, a juris doctorate like Ellen will tell you, you're you're starting off on the wrong foot. Actually, my first job was clerking for the court. <laughs> for the court. <laughs> oh, you can and tell me some job. stories. <laughs> I had three different judges that I clerked for. And when I was trained, I was told, your job is to find something wrong with these pleadings so the judge doesn't have to hear them. And the pro se's, of course, don't know the rules. And so they're going to miss filing deadlines. They're going to leave things out that are required. It, it is a, a game, and you have to learn. That's why you go to law school for three years, is to learn the rules. It's like playing bridge. If you don't know the rules of bridge, you're going to lose. So that's one problem with the pro se's, but also they just aren't good writers. If that's the other thing you learn as an attorney, well, as a litigator, as a litigator, and so you learn to put your different. You've got to capture the judge in the first page. Well, a pro, a pro se will go on for pages of things that don't. You don't know where he's going with this, and so there, all those things are immediately rejected. But my ex-husband was a. Um, a bankruptcy well he he did a bankruptcy case he was actually a securities attorney and he went into bankruptcy court and he he was an attorney you know a very experienced attorney and he lost on some procedural thing and he said where does it say that in the rules and the and the whoever he asked said well i don't think it says that anywhere it, you know you just have to know it if you're a bankruptcy lawyer you know it in other words there's there are rules of the club and if you're not part of the club you're going to not be able to play the game very interesting. Very astute. Dave, what do you think about what this means when a person becomes a realtor and they are selling properties and they're attempting to close deals? Let's say it takes two years or three years for an informed public to get this information. Really, let's say it takes three years to become mainstream knowledge that you actually can't go through the traditional procedure of buying property anymore and your due diligence is going to have to be extensive to really understand what's going on and to make sure you actually can own your property. What do you think this means for real estate agents? <laughs> it's not really a complex question. I have realtors taking my chain of title assessment workshops because they actually want to go in when uh, they get a listing I mean, nowadays, it used to be when you, you could trust, like Ellen was saying before, you could trust that the banks were going to hold the note, and they would keep it for 30 years until it was fully monetized, and then they could turn around and, and lend the money again. The, the problem is that with the chain of titles being so convoluted uh, because of MERS and the issues involving securitization, now realtors are basically looking at this thing, and, and a lot, many of them are just turning a blind eye. Uh, I have real estate agents that have contacted me from all over the country, and they are looking at this thing and going, I don't want to sell REOs or short sales anymore. I'm only going to take sales where I know I can work with clear title, and, and I'm not going to have issues because if I sell this to a bona fide purchaser for value and all of a sudden they find out that some lender from the past comes back and starts suing them, they're going to turn around, they're going to sue me, and they're going to sue everyone up the entire chain of title, which is exactly what happened in the Harvey versus Garbett mortgage case in Utah. And that case is still ongoing, by the way. The, the, the bigger problem, I mean, they don't want to face this. Uh, and I understand that. The broker doesn't either, because they've got errors and omissions insurance coverage that is going to be tested. And you get that thing tested several times, 
uh, even if you are indemnified as part of the process, the fact is, is if they put you down as a defendant, at some point in time, you're going to either have to show up in court or you're going to have to retain counsel, and that's going to cost money. And if you get hit two or three times and you've got to drop five or ten grand in, in counsel in, return, in attorney fees to get out of the suit because you were either indemnified or you didn't know or, you know, I mean, you know, God forbid they can actually prove you knew, but you went ahead and conveyed or allowed it to convey anyway. You didn't stick up for the borrower and your duty was to the seller. And, and the next thing you know, you've got this big convoluted mess in court where everybody's filing cross petitions, suing each other for, you know, some sort of common law complaint or lender liability or negligence claim or something, you know, fraud claim. Uh, and the whole thing is just going to become one convoluted mess. We have a case in East Texas where we told the lender, uh, you know, the, uh, the realtor for the lender, look, you need to stop selling the house. You need to stop marketing the house. Uh, our attorney called that realtor and said, look, there's a Liz Penance file. Did you not know that? You were noticed. You were told. There's a lawsuit going. You are taking backup contracts. We know this because the, the owner of that property that was foreclosed on is confronting people, uh, you know, looking at the property, asking them what they're doing there, and they're saying, oh, yeah, we just put in an offer in the house. And, you know, they were told, don't do it. And they said, pretty much told us, you know, gave us the middle finger. And so the attorney listed him as a defendant. So now the brokerage in the real estate company is named because they're trying to sell an REO that we believe was wrongfully taken. So this is, this is only the beginning right now, Kim. The, the tip of the iceberg is just starting to rear uh, its ugly head. This is unbelievable. Ellen, I want to go back for just a moment about the eminent domain piece that you were talking about. Do you think that eminent domain is legal? I know it has standing, but do you feel it's ethical and do you feel that eminent domain is legal? problem with it is that people have a bad feeling about eminent domain because they're thinking of properties that have been taken to put in a shopping center or something. But in this case, eminent domain is supposed to be for uh, taking properties in the public interest, something that serves the public interest. Now, let's say you have properties that are blighted, foreclosed, that are ruining the neighborhood. Nothing's being done with them. The bank itself doesn't want this property. I mean, they've already got the credit, all the all the CDSs, and you know, they've already gotten their money out of it several times over, and so it's just sitting there, uh, destroying the value of the neighbor's property. In that case, it's clearly in the public interest to take that property fix it up, and do something good with it. And even the ones that are just underwater, which is what they're talking about, but they're still paying, and so obviously those properties are not hurting the neighborhood. It's still in the public interest in the sense that you're giving the homeowner the choice to have their property or their mortgage taken by eminent domain and then renegotiated for their benefit. So obviously it helps them, and it helps the entire mortgage situation which is so bad right now because um when homeowners know that they can that they have an option for you know that they can they're going to be able to get a fair price they're going to get it's going to raise the property values all all across the board do you feel the same way dave uh yes largely in part i think that you're going to see an increase in litigation uh i already know that there's a lot of homeowners that have, have elected to just run away from the situation but um, I, th- I think that, you know, the legal problems and consequences of MERS and all these, uh, you know, the obfuscation of files and, and the uh, potential audit business, uh, as we know it, is you know, I had a um, assistant general counsel for Texas Association of Counties in a meeting I was in with several county clerks in the state of Texas, 
was telling me, he says, you know, this, this thing you're doing right now is a cottage industry just waiting to explode. I said, uh, we're already seeing it. My question to you is about eminent domain. What is your take on eminent domain that Ellen was explaining her perspective well, on? I mean, as far as taking for the public good, I think there's a lot of, uh, as much as I think that, you know, the, the counties and cities need to do something uh, to rectify their tax bases, because a lot of people, I think the biggest complaints I'm hearing now is that the value of the homes are dropping, but the assessments are still there, uh, you know, at their current levels. And, and so, uh, you know, obviously this is another issue that, you know, the counties, I guess, are rising up because, I mean, what else are they supposed to do? Um, and, and I agree that, you know, Ellen, what you're doing, you're on the forefront of, of something huge. And once one county starts this down this road, other counties are going to be following suit. They're going to be looking at this thing, and there's going to be legal challenges, um, you know, to eminent domain. I, I know the New London case was, was a huge one. You remember where those homeowners lost their property to, uh, you know, city development because it was for the public good. And so, you know, having all of these... Uh, issues come before it. I know this thing is going to be tied up in legal proceedings for quite some time. Well, in this case, I don't think it will be the homeowners, but it could well be the banks that find some sort of flaw in it. But one problem is that the proposal in San Bernardino, which is where we're actually going to file our, a counterproposal, the proposal on the books is there there will be a middleman who will take a commission, and, and that's very controversial because the middleman private company is liable to make out like a bandit and leave the city holding the bag with any liabilities. So we're saying it should all be public. In other words, it should be a public agency, ideally a public bank, that would take these properties and all the benefits would accrue to the public. That sounds like the best idea I've heard so far. I, I like the Bank of North Dakota's business model, by the way. There are other banks that I have found in the U.S. that actually will hold the paper and will do a 15-year note at 4%. Uh, but they want 20% down, and your credit score has to be at least 680 but they'll do it, and, you know, this is the old school, the old system. Um, and, and obviously, you know, I know that it's a military bank, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I look at stuff like this, I said, yeah, I can understand why they're doing it. A lot of people are moving their money out of the major banks into credit unions because, you know, they think that that's an option. But uh, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think that, you know, having public treasuries and public uh, entities, you know, banking entities representing the interest of the state itself is, is a huge way uh, of <laughs> you can ensure self-governance. I fancy the idea. I really do. I have a quick question. If you think, Dave, that credit unions are in with MERS on providing loans. I have, I have a list of all the MERS members with all the links to their respective websites that I got through my back channels. But I mean, specifically, do you know if it's mostly not credit unions with only some credit unions? I think some credit unions are MERS members or have been sucked into that trick. I think there's a lot of banks that, you know, my little bank here in Texas that I bank at, I found out sells all their notes to Flagstar. And I said, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I said, I'm never going to get a mortgage loan with you. You know, people will have to rise up and stop accepting MERS mortgages. They're going to have to get educated and say, look, if I'm going to borrow money from your bank, uh, I don't want this note securitized and I don't want it in the MERS system. And they're just going to have to refuse to sign or not borrow. But what if most Where of the banks are in it? Go ahead, Ellen. And where, to, if they were to refuse to sign, uh, we bought a, a property back when property was hot. It was in the whatever eighties, I think, and uh, and so it was a it was a seller's market. And um, and my ex husband, who was an attorney, you know, started fiddling with the contract, and they just wouldn't accept it. They didn't want any changes to their contract. So how? Which which? First of all, which paragraph do you zero in on if you wanted to refuse? 
I mean, is there a paragraph that says the bank can sell this off? To, is it obvious? Yeah, paragraph 19 or 20, depending on which long-form deed of trust or mortgage you're looking at. Okay, so it is obvious if they know what they're looking for. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is what the CODA preparers are taught and the investors are taught in all my classes is to look for those paragraphs because if they can sell the note or a partial interest thereof, it would be paragraph 19 or 20 in most of your, your long forms. Um, you know, when they're looking at stuff like that, it's like, okay, this should tell you right here that we've got a potential obfuscation of the chain of custody of the note, and therefore that might affect the title because these lenders in the MERS system don't perfect their interest in the land records. They rely on MERS as a static beneficiary so they can do all their, you know, chicanery on Wall Street. Even though it's unregulated, you know, they, of course, as an afterthought, and I don't even think they, they thought of this uh, right out of the gate, that it's potential consequence to the chain of title. But uh, I wonder, know. does that work? I mean, if you say, I'm not going to, I don't want this paragraph in there. Yeah, I mean, you've already envisioned your curtains in this house. You know, you love the house, you want sure. the house. It seems to me that the bank will say, all right, we'll find somebody else. Yep. Because they need to sell that property off to investors because they don't have the money. I mean, they're not going to be able to meet the banking regulations otherwise. I, I think you need to, to do some more shopping. I mean, that's what I did. I actually, uh, uh-huh. you know, went in and found a, a MERS lender that said that they would hold the paper and not sell it and not securitize it and put oh, it in right. writing. So you can you can find different banks for the same property. Is that right? You're you're looking for your loan, right? Okay. Yeah, I was looking for a loan. And I found one where they would approve me yeah, and that they point. wouldn't put it in MERS. They agreed in writing not to put it in MERS, and they agreed not to securitize it. They agreed to hold the paper, and they gave me a decent interest rate, a you know, fixed rate for 15 years. And, um, you know, I put 20% down and everything was fine. Is it not more of a rarefied scenario? And basically, most of the banks are going to be giving you adhesive contracts, which is as is, right? You're knowing, you know this going in, but the thing is, is that these things, I think, you know, can be structured in such a way as to be win-win, even though it is an adhesion contract. My, My biggest problem is when you go into a mortgage loan and you have been told that here's your dream home and you're qualified for this half-million-dollar mortgage when they know for a fact that you don't make that much money, and the only reason that you're in closing is just a formality to sign all these papers, and they could literally put a clause in the contract that says, oh, by the way, and you agree to give us your firstborn, too, you know, and these people would sign it anyway because they wanted the keys. I mean, this was the total concept of American home ownership when this thing started out back in 2003. You know, during the Clinton era, when he was out promoting, telling everybody that every American should have a home. You know, I mean, when you're looking at stuff like this, and then the banks all of a sudden make all this credit available, you know, who knew? Uh, you know, all these people went and they said, well, we can get a mortgage loan. Uh, people that had no business getting a mortgage loan got a mortgage loan. So, you know, I think that now the, the savvy investor is going to do more than just walk into closing. I think the savvy investor is going to be doing title research to make sure they're not buying a lemon. Stand by, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dave Krieger and Ellen Brown. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, 
you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut. The Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com and back to the show. Okay. Ellen, do you want to respond to anything or can I go ahead? I was just going to say about the contract of adhesion. Uh, it used to be that nobody ever read those. Con- you couldn't read it. You couldn't understand what you were reading anyway. And so you just trusted your realtor, you know, who would uh, smile and put it under your, your, your whole family's waiting, you know, out in the car or something. <laughs> And That's true. You, know, you would just sign it. It's kind of like that when you rent a car and they say, well, this paragraph means this and this paragraph means this, sign here and here, and you just do it. But now, so I think you're definitely doing a very needed service by alerting people that there are things in these contracts that they do not want to sign, that they should look for them, and that you know they have remedies, they have alternatives. And also, I would say buying a home for a person or their family is an emotional experience. Even more important to make sure that you're reading the fine print and that you understand what's there. Do you really think the realtors read the contracts now? Both Dave and Ellen, I want your answer to this. Do the realtors ever look at the contracts, do you think, today? I'd leave it to Dave because that's not my area of expertise. Well, we're, we're talking to more and more realtors these days that are putting the word out to the major associations on one end, Kim, you have certain entities, realtor, uh, you know, support entities that, you know, there's a lot of pitch going on out there to move short sales, to move REOs. You know, we got all the shadow inventory. The market's not going to bounce back until we sell all these homes. Uh, you know, this is a huge problem for real estate agents because they got the blinders on and all they want to do is sell, sell, sell. Uh, you got these million dollar producers, and if you look at, at most of their track records, uh, this day and age, I've got realtors telling me that there are problems with the amount of the short sales that are available in the market and the fact that these realtors are focusing on nothing but short sales and REOs as part of their portfolio uh, of what they're selling and, and the commission that they're taking. I mean, they, they got some gain out of being in the middle of this thing. Their brokerage obviously was put in the middle of it. I would say that probably 90% of the real estate community out there right now has the blinders on and is only focused on selling property because if we don't, we're going to starve. The other 10% has been told by various attorneys general through the real estate commissions, do not sell REOs. Be careful about selling short sales. We've got title companies out there uh, like Loris Title in Cleveland that, that is a big proponent, an advocate of selling short sales because of the fact that you've got the the seller actually conveying an interest directly to the buyer. And so, you know, how could you not have a chain of title issue? Well, the problem is if the lender that's taking that money and unjustly enriching themselves, or if in fact they are unjustly enriching themselves, 
doesn't legally own that property, and somewhere down the road you've got a problem, these realtors could all get dragged back into it. And I would say that about 10% of the real estate market now is at least somewhat cognizant of the fact that there are problems and are now starting to begin to investigate. This so complicates what is already a depressed and polluted marketplace. And I used to be a licensed real estate agent, Kim. (laughs) Where do the title companies go? When do they become liable for something? Please address this, Dave. Well, the bigger issues, and I I had a uh, Christmas day last year, I was communicating by text to a, a, a marketing rep for a title, major title company that's part of FNF. And, um, and she was like, you know, why are you trying to run us out of business? And I said, no, you'll do that on your own. You don't need my help. Uh, you know, if you guys don't do what you're supposed to do and exercise due diligence and do your run-ups and actually search, your title company is going to be called into question. Uh, I got to sit on a conference call last year. There were 70 title companies on the phone. And the lead moderator says, I want you to dial in and tell me what you think. Call me back after the program is over. I listened for an hour and a half, and the biggest problem was the title companies are saying, look, we've got these Schedule B exclusions and conditions in our contracts. And if you look there, it says that we do not insure anything that's not recorded in the public record. Well, what have they just done? They've just written around the entire MERS title system, the entire MERS lending portfolio scam, whatever you want to call it, they've now made themselves, uh, you know, they've taken themselves outside of the legal liability, but the problem is, is they're going to get hit with a lawsuit anyway. If somebody finds out and they're mad, what are they going to do? They're going to get an attorney, and the attorney's going to name everyone, including the title company, who's going to have to retain counsel. The title companies on this conference call, Kim, said, we are not prepared to take hits like this. We'll be out of business overnight if we get hit with two of these lawsuits. We will not be able to, we don't have the legal resources to fight it. And they'll go under. And title companies have gone under and are still going under. Uh, the, the problem that they've got is, you know, some of these title companies did not insure properly. And, and I had an attorney in Florida uh, a couple nights ago tell me in a conference call that they're starting to see uh, places in the title insurance policies that said we exclude coverage for uh, anything that appears to involve securitized notes. Well, you know, why are we buying your title insurance policy? You know, if you're, if you're excluding what's not recorded in the public record under Schedule B, Paragraph 2 or 3, which is where you usually find it under most title policies, if you don't see that or you, you do see it, it's like, why am I buying this title insurance? Well, you know, because you're taking the title company at their word that they've done a run-up and they've investigated everything they're supposed to investigate before they issue an owner's or lender's policy. Uh, you know, they guarantee that they're going to cover a certain amount of your legal fees and costs in trying to resolve litigation having to do with clear title because, as you know, Kim, the average reasonable and savvy, prudent person is not going to go out and buy a lemon if they know it's a lemon or suspect that there's clouds on title and deficiencies in title. And the title company is supposed to be there to guarantee a title free of defects. No chain of title should have defects if it's going to be properly conveyed, and the title company insures against this, except now all of a sudden when you start looking at the exclusions and conditions under Schedule B, you start finding out it's not such a good deal after all. Dave, you wrote a book about credit called The Credit Restoration Primer, a 263-page self-help credit repair book that was first released in 1995 and is now in its fourth edition. 
Now, I have not read that book, but my question to you is, what do you think about the credit reporting system in America? <laughs> you know, MERS doesn't operate like the big three. Uh, Experian and uh, CSC, which is Equifax. And TRW? Union. Those, those are the big three. Uh, we, we also have Innovus, uh, which is out of Ohio, that also operates a, a credit database, but they're not as well relied upon as the others. Uh, you know, when, when it comes to determining FICO scores under Fair Isaac and Beacon and some of these others, the, uh, the circumstances that we're seeing in the, in the credit business, uh, you know, they've also securitized student loans and credit cards, too. Uh, so you have other issues now, and you'll see a lot of cases coming out of late where people are taking their credit card cases when the credit card companies are coming after them and suing them for deficiency balances or balances that, you know, are doing owing that are charged off. Uh, these these homeowners are going back into court, and a lot of them are doing it pro se, and the judges are actually listening to this because a lot of it's being done in the uh, local county level. And uh, the judges are, are putting two and two together and starting to realize that uh, these people, if the defenses are proper, that the people that are signing these affidavits have no personal knowledge whatsoever of what's being conveyed. I mean, this is robo-signing, uh, you know, Class 102, uh, because 101 is involving the mortgage, mortgage loans, 102 is involving all these credit cards and student loans and other things that, you know, buyers and, and credit card holders and student loan holders are now starting to go into court, and they're starting to win lawsuits against the banks that are bringing them and uh, challenging the fact that, you know, these notes have been securitized and these people legally don't have standing to be there, and a lot of them are avoiding their cases. I've never heard of that in the student loan area. That's, oh, it, that's... It's happening. Yeah, I've got a guy in Little Rock who's a paralegal that has actually gone in and contested and won his case. I would definitely like to interview him because this is in the student loan arena, a kind of an anomaly because we've all been told if you have a student loan and I can't tell you how many young people I know that are suffering and in bondage and literally enslaved by their loans, they have no peace. They've completely bought in that in order to get a college degree, they got to pay 50 or $75,000. Of course, when they sign everything, I'm not saying they're not accountable for what they sign, but they do not appreciate it signing what they're signing. Correct. And I mean, you could thank Sally May for, for some of that, you know, because if you, if you look in publication 938, which is an IR, at irs.gov, uh, and we use this as a resource file when we're looking up these remics that uh, Alan talked about earlier to find out what the status of these remics are. You know, when we research this stuff, you'll see a lot of the later uh, releases and reports by the IRS in 2009, 2010, and 2011 will show you a lot of Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae, Sally Mae portfolios that have been securitized. So we, we know there's evidence of it there, uh, and it's a matter of just basically holding their feet to the fire when they get into court. But you're going to see a lot more of these challenges come down as time goes on, and it is tough you know, for people, especially if they're getting degrees and stuff that, that's not like law or nursing or some other, you know, extremely highly valued uh, profession these days where there's a huge need. Uh, you know, you certainly, if you went out and got a $50,000 student loan and you got a degree in, in forestry, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I just don't know what you're going to do with it because of the number of job skills. You know, people aren't thinking this stuff out. Uh, this is largely in part due to the lack of financial education in America. And, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, I think our, our school systems need to go through a little revamping. And I think that, uh, you know, Mortgages 101 needs to be part of a high school curriculum. I agree with you. I think that's totally true. I'm, I'm very interested in that uh, 
what you're calling robo-signing 102. I'd love to hear more about that. I'll write about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a huge deal. Every probably fourth or fifth case I read, and I read a lot of them, uh, and I know you do too, Ellen, but the ones I'm getting in, my network is spitting them out to me, and a lot of them are credit card cases that are being litigated in California and uh, New York and New Jersey. And one of the things about New York judges they're incredible. These guys, Arthur Shack is my hero. <laughs> Arthur Shack is, you know, he, he is literally between him and Jeff Spinner out in Suffolk County and, and uh, you know, some of these other judges, Karen Murphy and Dana Winslow. And, and I mean, they're, they're literally my heroes. We had a judge uh, named uh, Stranieri in uh, Richmond County, which is Staten Island, and uh, Midland Credit Funding uh, brought a lawsuit on a credit card debt against a a credit card holder, and the judge wrote back when he wrote his opinion, he basically put the entire uh, lawsuit on hold, and the lawsuit order said, who are you? Who, 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 who? And then he put a footnote, Peter Townsend, the who. And then we have the next line, I am he, and you are me, and we are all together. Footnote, I am the walrus, Lennon and McCartney. Third one, it ain't me, babe. No, 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 it ain't me, babe. Footnote, Bob Dylan. <laughs> he wrote all this stuff in his opinion, and I, I mean, it literally took me 10 minutes to stop laughing when I was reading this thing. That's fantastic. I mean, this judge. Okay, what, say what the name is again. The Judge Stranieri, S-T-R-A-N-I-E-R-E. If, if you send me an email, I'll send you that decision. It was Midland Funding versus Talia Farrow. And, and I just had to laugh because the attorney didn't bother to put down his contact information on the pleadings. That's wild. That's wild. <laughs> this is the kind of ineptness that we have going on in the system that these judges I, in New York, I mean, that's why they're my heroes. They're catching yeah, this I stuff. Yeah, I think the judges should get more credit than they do. The, I mean, the judges I knew were, were honest and trying hard and totally overworked. I think that is our remedy is in court. They're probably as overworked as the air traffic controllers. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the dockets are going to get worse. The dockets are going to get more clogged up. I know there's a lot of foreclosure defense out attorneys out there that have told me that they would love to see the court dockets in these counties just get so clogged and back up that it takes, you know, thousands of days to foreclose on a property. I noticed now that Michigan is considering... I know that uh, Curtis Hertel, who's Ingham County's Register of Deeds, is now proposing that Michigan be turned into a judicial state. Wow. Non-judicial thing is not working, and the Sourman case oh, right. you know, just gave them MERS too big a foothold. Uh, Jackson versus MERS in Minnesota gave MERS too big a foothold. What do you think are the credit reports of most of Americans now after what's happened in the housing industry? <laughs> <laughs> I think your, your average credit score is below 620. <laughs> I think it's below 550. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I mean, it depends on who you talk to, Kim. The thing is, is that, uh, you know, the, these credit bureaus, as I was alluding to before, they at least have the Fair Credit Reporting Act that oversees what they're doing and holds them accountable for maintaining fair and accurate credit reporting standards. MERS doesn't have those kinds of restrictions and, and safeguards to benefit the homeowners. Uh, MERS basically is a legend in its own mind. It put itself out there and got a law firm to write a legal opinion saying that everything it was doing was right on and that uh, it was going to be its own little monster, and that's what it's grown into. You know, it's like Eddie, you know, with pointed ears. And, and so when you look at this 
situation and you try to compare what MERS is doing to what the credit bureaus are doing, well, everything that MERS is doing actually is spilling over onto the credit bureaus because we're seeing that a lot of lenders that don't have standing to pursue mortgage foreclosures are literally trashing the credit bureau files of all these affected borrowers, whether they own the property or not. And this is something that is actually being taken to task in a lot of these mortgage foreclosure proceedings where the borrowers are actually suing the lenders and telling them, as one of the conditions, you will remove your trade line item from this credit report. Yeah, it's a whole systems matrix, literally. You're right about the matrix and the matrix and the matrix. I I would concur that that's probably what you're dealing with, especially in light of Ellen's comment, where you're dealing with multiple sales of a loan over a period of time, and then they take each one of these loans. If you have a 135th percentage of a loan, if it's been sold 35 times to 35 different investor groups, and each one of these 35 remix is taking or, or they're collateralizing, uh, you know, and putting these things into a CDO, and you have one thirty-fifth of a loan inside of a CDO, and it's being collateralized and wraps into a default swap, you've got 35 different default swaps operating, 35 different REMIX operating, 35 different interests, and they're all selling those on top of what's already been sold. So that's why if, if you say the investors have an unsecured claim, Probably they've already been paid. I mean, quite a few of them have already been paid. And you were you were saying, Ellen, that the tranche would be basically closed. It paid off and closed. If the property went into default and they were they had a CDO which was wrapped in a credit default swap, a derivative or a bet, you know, they they were protected by this form of insurance called <laughs> this form of betting called insurance. Then they would already been have been paid by the counterparty to their bet for their losses. So as it is now, they could then collect again if they're allowed to foreclose and get the, well, I'm not just sure how that works. But anyway, the thing is they've already been paid by the on the CDS, so they should not have a remedy in, I'm assuming, a um, that's like taking the properties by eminent domain and somebody sorting, sorting out the fair thing for everybody. So those investors have already been paid. They, they take nothing. It would only be investors who have actually lost money on these deals who will put money out. Your unsecured claim is only for the money you've lost, not for the interest you've lost or for you know your expected profit. It's only for the actual money that you've spent. Now the judges have to be educated, not just the attorneys. The judges do too. Yeah, well, and that's why it takes very clear writing. I mean, the judges learn from the uh, counsel. It's the it's the attorneys who educate the judge. Quite often, a judge's brief is just pulled from the briefs of the, or a judge's opinion is pulled from the briefs of the attorneys. So that's why we have to have very clear arguments right up front, hit them between the eyes, and you know, show them what's happening here. We are all gathered right now at the juncture where this discovery and the fallout of it is really at its beginning. Would you agree with that, Dave? Yes. Okay. And at the beginning, there's going to be a transition between people's acknowledgement that they're in the scenario and the speed upon which reliable, competent, people are trained to defend them in the game, in the court system, as it is properly. In that lag time, which is where we are, what do you see? More confusion. Not all investors are informed. The public is still reeling from what the mainstream media is portraying. You know, programs like this, you scratch the tip of the iceberg and you make, and this is a good thing, Kim, you, you make people aware. 
and that's half of it is getting the word out. That's why we, you know we try to get on as many public speaking engagements as possible. Uh, I'm going to be at a public speaking event in Seattle on September 8th, uh, where I'm appearing on stage with an attorney uh, who practices in Washington and Florida, uh, who's a very good foreclosure defense attorney and has won many cases and gets a lot of concessions from the courts because, as Ellen said, she educates the judge. And she says, I'm one of these attorneys that's like a kid in the, in the grocery store that's going to keep pestering his mom until she gets what she wants. I want that candy bar. I want a box of sugared cereal. And, and she gets concessions out of the court, and she won't leave them alone until she does. She's one of these that has done enough of her homework and enough research to know these things. Now, as, as to the aspects of the number of attorneys and people like Ellen that have that kind of knowledge and are trained to go in and focus on you know, the key issues, and, you know, most of the, the good attorneys I know tell me, pick two or three points, Dave, uh, and stick to them, and uh, you'll be fine. You know, when you start dragging these things off into, uh, you know, a dozen different directions, you further convolute the court and confuse the issue. So, you know, the attorneys obviously are going through their own issues and, and their own training programs, and this is why we've made CLEs available and are trying to increase the number of CODA preparers out there, because the more that the CODA preparers come in contact with these attorneys and get their interest in, the bigger we can make our attorney network explode. And that's what we've been trying to do. You're doing a fabulous job. I'm so honored to have you on the show today. And I'm so appreciative of your book, Clouded Titles, and the work that you're doing and how you're assisting people and what you've identified. And Ellen, I so appreciate you being on the show today and taking your time impromptu to join us this morning is there anything else you'd like to say before we close, Ellen? I'll start with you. Well, I'll just say about the the confusion that we're will necessarily have right now. It's that whole thing about you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, like you if you're going to clean out your closet, you pull it all out and it's a huge mess. But you need that to, to in order to when things were going well. If you had pointed out these issues, everybody would say, "Well, whatever." You know, it seems to be working. It's only when it's not working that people are willing to do something about it. So we really are on the edge of a great opportunity here, I think. I agree. And would you like to say anything in closing, Dave? Well, again, the more people that find out about this and share this information with their fellow man, I mean, we, we need to become united in our thought. Uh, and, you know, I think Ellen would agree that we have to do as much as we can with the time we have to try and right these wrongs. I mean, it's up to us to do this because everyone else uh, seems to be focused on you know, what, what's on TV and who's going to win the election and, you know, it's all these other little issues. Basically, they play a bigger picture in most of America's mind than the stuff that we're playing in right now. But two or three years from now, this, I think, will all be mainstream and everybody's going to be talking about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dave Krieger, the author of the brand new book, Clouded Titles, Who Really Owns Your Home?, he can be reached by going to Clouded Titles, pick up his book. And we also want to thank our surprise guest today on the Starship, Web of Debt author, Ellen Hodgson Brown, J.D. Thank you so much for being here. It's rainmaking time. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> 